This is a Federal News Network podcast. After two years of total vacancy, the Merit Systems Protection Board now has two of its three members, enough to make decisions that stick. The board is where feds who feel they were wrongly sanctioned can appeal decisions of administrative judges. Here with another view of the practical effect of the board's reestablishment, federal employment attorney Stephanie Rapp-Tully, a partner at Tully Rinky. Ms. Rapp-Tully, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. What do you think the effect will be on federal employment? Because basically the MSPB is where everybody that's not in a union goes for redress here if they don't like something that happened to them. Uh, But what's your sense of how this will change things? Well, there are a couple of big item cases that need to be decided. The Chia cases that have been causing problems at the board for quite some time. Basically, certain agencies found that administrative judges were not properly appointed. And so the board will have to very quickly probably make a decision on those cases because a lot of cases, several hundred cases, I believe, have been held up waiting for that decision. Well, let's go Um, into that for a second. That Mm -hmm. is to say the decisions rendered by the administrative judges, and they're not administrative law judges, they're just administrative judges at the MSPB. And I guess there's a difference there. Tell us the background here. Who says they weren't properly appointed and what is the effect of that on the decisions they did make? Well, it comes down from a Supreme Court case, Lucia versus Securities and Exchange Commission from the Supreme Court, which basically found that administrative law judges at an agency were officers of the United States and exercised significant authority and therefore were subject to appointments clause of the United States Constitution. It is unclear whether MSPB judges would fall under that definition, but several agencies have made it a point to make this challenge. A lot of us in the practice think it's just a way to kick the bucket down the road, but it is a challenge that needs to be decided upon by the board, and it hasn't been able to be decided without a quorum. So that, I think, will be a big-ticket item as the board ramps up. I mean, I'm sure they're looking at it now because they're in their jobs now. So I imagine that's one of the big things that they're looking at first. Got it. So if these judges are determined to have not been appointed properly, that means whatever decisions those judges made would be moot? So a lot of these cases are being what's called dewopped, dismissed without prejudice. So they've been pushed to, you know, basically limbo, waiting for a determination and then to have a judge properly appointed. I mean, the board can fix this by properly appointing their judges, if whatever that may be, you know, based on their review. But basically, agencies have just been putting things on delay until this decision can be made. Um, And it's not uniform. It is not all agencies doing this. And it is not even all cases at a particular agency. It is not at all uniform. It's kind of sporadic that agencies are making these objections. But if any of them are making the objections, then the board has to solve that issue for everybody, even if it's just a few making that objection. What would they have to do if they decide, well, they weren't properly appointed? How do you fix that? properly appoint them. I, you know, whatever the whatever that is, whatever is a proper appointment. They've talked about changing the title of judges to officers of the United States to different things to work within those definitions, but the cure is to properly appoint them. But that could be remedied within the board operation itself and it wouldn't require Congress, for example, or they're not White House appointees or that kind of thing. The judges Potentially. I mean, if they are subject to the appointments clause of the United States Constitution, there may have to be some involvement. I don't think it'll get to the point of, you know, like Article Three judges and having to go through those types of appointments. I don't, I don't think anyone makes, I hope no one makes that argument. 
but maybe there's something that's subject to. Sure. But yeah, if that was the case, then you'd have no judges in a board instead of all judges and no board. Right, exactly, which is not better. That's not better. <laughs> We're speaking with Stephanie Rapp-Tully. She's a partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. All right, so go on then with what then, let's assume we're past that. What are some of the other practical effects here? That would clear out a lot of cases once that's resolved. Sure. They still need to deal with the uh, roughly 3,600 cases in backlog for petitions for review. But in terms of normal case processing, like if someone were to get removed tomorrow and want to file with the board, there is still going to be a delay if they get all the way through a hearing and want to file a petition for review. There will be a delay in getting that petition for review adjudicated because there is this backlog, but at least it's moving now. You know, for the past five years, we haven't been moving at all. So employees filing today might see a faster turnaround than employees that filed potentially three years ago. Right. So it's up to the board then to figure out how they dispose of those cases. And there's a lot of filters they could use to decide which of that stack they get to first. Yeah, there's a number of different ways they could do it. You know, first in, first out, you know, kind of an idea, which I think in a lot of respects, unless there's like Lucia cases, which I think will be a priority. But beyond that, I think that they should go in chronological order, you know, get cases from 2013 out before they do cases from 2018. But there's a number of different ways to approach it, right? You could look at what are the easier cases to adjudicate and get those done very quickly and then save the more complicated cases for later or reverse that. You could do the more complicated cases first and then have the more simple cases at the end. There's a number of different ways that they could approach this. It's ultimately going to be up to the board on how they divide and conquer here. All right. And let me ask you this. The one remaining judge who was there all by his lonesome for a long time there did render an opinion on a lot of those cases that came in before he left. Do those have any value at all other than as guidance to the new board members? I think it's just that whether they adopt his decisions, because you need a quorum to make a decision. And so even though he provided you know, his judgment on it, you need to have the two people. So I think it's exactly that. It's guidance. It's his impression of it, whether they choose to follow his findings or make their own. I don't know if there's really precedent for that. I don't think they have to go with his judgments, although that would seem to make the most sense. And I think you're referring to Mr. Robbins. You know, he's been at the board for an incredible long time, um, and so has Mr. Levitt. So, you know, I believe that there'll probably be some understanding of what they need to do just based on both of those two individuals' experience at the board. Mr. Levitt being there when Mr. Robbins was there, you know, I think that that will help. And what do you think the board members should do that are arriving, Mr. Lamone and Tristan Levitt, when they get there? They will have this staff of judges to deal with, too, besides everyone's concentrating on the backlog of the appeals. But somehow they have to, I would think, and you can tell me what you think, establish the normal sense of operation of how this whole thing should be, which it has not had for five years. Yeah, I think there will be a certain amount of change of command kind of of an environment. Now, Mr. Levitt, like I said, has already been at the board. He was general counsel. So he knows how the board operates. He's been there for some time, and he's been acting as the board's general counsel. So he'll have a good idea. Mr. Lamone, of course, has never been at the board. So, you know, how the two of them decide there likely will be a change of command, a this is how we're going to run things, or... We've been noticing in cases these these issues. This is how you need to be. De- I'm sure that those conversations will be occurring. I don't know that we'll ever get to know about them, but they will. I'm sure they'll occur. 
I wonder, and I'm just imagining this, knowing he was appointed and how long it's been for these appointments, and being on the staff there, I wonder if Mr. Levitt might have maybe just snuck into the room where those cases are and read a few of them a day and uh, made a quiet crib note as to what his decision would be so that he can say, well, I'm already through them on day one after they actually seat themselves. Is that just my imagination? That would be fantastic. I would hope, you know, like I said, he has significant experience at the board. I would imagine he had coming into this already a plan. You know, if Kathy Harris is confirmed, I'm sure she'll come in with the same, you know, we need to get down, figure things out. But I bet both Kathy Harris and Mr. Lamone will rely on Mr. Levitt quite a bit um, in terms of his expertise at the board and already understanding the structure in the organization internally. And as a lawyer and as a firm that represents federal employees in disputes over adverse employment actions, would you then recommend people now go ahead and make their claim to the board, knowing that it's more or less fully functioning now? Well, sure, primarily because those timelines don't run very long. So if, you know, when you've been terminated, you only have a certain number of days before you lose your right to file at the board. If you're a whistleblower, you know, you have to do a few things, but you only have a certain amount of time you can file. People need to continue to be filed because the cases are still being litigated and adjudicated through judges. I mean, I have several handful of active MSPB cases right now. It's just when you get to that PFR level that cases have stopped. But a petition for review is not the only way to deal with a negative or a bad decision. Of course, you can also appeal to the federal circuit as well. So, you know, employees should be following those deadlines and making sure that they preserve their rights, regardless of the situation with the board. Stephanie Rapp Tully is a partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while 
although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at Grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.